Welcome to the World of Intelligence, a podcast for you to discover the latest analysis of global military and security trends within the open source defense intelligence community. Now on to the episode with your host, Terry Pitar. Hello and welcome to this episode of the Jane's podcast. I'm Terry Patar. I lead the Jane's intelligence unit. I'm joined on this episode by Erin Sikorsky, who is the Deputy Director of the Centre for Climate and Security and the Director of the International Military Council on Climate and Security. Previously, Erin served as the Deputy Director of the Strategic Futures Group on the National Intelligence Council in the United States, where she also co-authored the Quadrennial Global Trends Report and led the US intelligence community's environmental and climate security analysis. Erin, thanks for joining me on this episode. Terry, thanks so much for having me. Um, I sort of came across two pieces you'd, you'd written, I guess, earlier this year on War on the Rocks, and that was really what prompted me to invite you on to, to the podcast to talk to us, because I don't know to what extent people really in their day jobs at the moment are focused on climate security issues, but it's really struck me that in every national security strategy and document that we're reading at the moment, whether it's from the US or the UK or elsewhere, it's really clear that climate security is, if not the top priority, at least one of the top two or three priorities that every country is trying to work with within the context of national security, which I think is what's striking. It'll be great to come on to talk to you about those two pieces in particular, but I thought perhaps just to give us an idea of how you've come on this journey in terms of becoming an expert, leading expert in climate security. Sure. Thanks, Terry. Uh, So I worked in the U.S. intelligence community for over a decade, And I come at these issues from a security background. I led teams that were focused on extremism in the Middle East and East Africa and conflict. But time and again, as I led these teams and we did our analysis, what we found was climate and environmental issues shaping the landscape, right? Shaping the conflict landscape, shaping the governance landscape, and they were issues we couldn't ignore, right? They were were key to what we were trying to understand and warn policymakers about. And as I you know, did that work and led those teams, I realized it was something I wanted to be more involved in and that I thought the US intelligence community needed to be more involved in and, and understanding of. So I came to the National Intelligence Council in the US and worked there in a group that was mostly focused on strategic risk and future forecasting. The Global Trends Report is an unclassified report that comes out every four years that looks you know, at 20 years down the road, what are the key things shaping the national security landscape? And and the most recent report we put out, climate change and environment, was one of those key issues. And so for me, uh, just really digging into all the ways in which climate and environment shape the landscape and really trying to go beyond just the look at, you know, what does it mean for military installations or military forces, but how is it intersecting with other other risks? Those are the kinds of questions I get excited about and, and why I like to work on this. And again, coming out of that security and intel background, um, not not a climate science background. Did you have to learn a lot then in terms of the kind of more technical aspects of the environmental climate science, et cetera, that, that would help you understand? what the risks were and also not just what the risks were, but also how to track them. Right. So, you know, I definitely had to focus on my scientific literacy and which I think is really important. But the good thing is in the United States, we've got a great body of scientific experts within the government and without that we, you know, folks who work in security can turn to. So I think 
what what was really important for me was figuring out where to go for sources of the information, you know, not having to understand how to do the climate science myself, but where to find the risk information and how to interpret it. Um, so yeah, so it was it was a bit of a learning curve, but it was also, I mean, uh, I think actually being able to to bridge the gap between the scientific community and the security community is a really important skill to have and something that I found I was I was able to do as I dug more into this uh, work. That's really interesting. And I think especially what you touched on there, which was knowing where the sources are, what are the reliable sources, I guess, because climate science is still very politicized. And I think there's clearly some people who de- uh, you know, want to debate to what extent um, people are, you know, the, the root cause of recent climate change we've seen. Um, but that doesn't really take away from, I guess, the effects, which is probably more what you're you're interested in in terms of understanding national security issues. Um, is how much of a challenge is that though in terms of finding sources that are objective and aren't politicized? Sure. Well, I think in terms of finding sources, that's pretty straightforward because the scientific record is there, and there's there's strong modeling. There's the IPCC reports. There's U.S. government reporting uh, from the Global Change Research Program. All of that is is there and reputable. I do think the politicization is is a concern, but what we found, at least in the U.S., is that uh, on the the climate security front is actually a way, a place where we've seen bipartisan support and bipartisan action. Even under the Trump administration, Congress passed legislation requiring the Defense Department, requiring the intelligence community to um, do more on, on climate security issues. So I do think the security frame uh, for understanding the risks from climate change can help uh, bridge that that sometimes partisan or politicized divide. I mean, within looking at the the information that you're seeing, how much are you trying to track the short term versus the long term? You know, what what is the kind of time range that you're talking about in terms of actually looking at climate security as an issue? Because I imagine there's only so much you can do in terms of tracking short term risks. Mm-hmm. Yes and no. I think, unfortunately, right, as we've seen this summer, the the risks from, from climate change are no longer just a future issue, right? We're seeing them in our own backyards, whether it's here in the U.S. with the fires or in Germany with the floods or in India. I mean, you can spin the globe, put your finger down, you can talk about uh, a climate security risk in those locations. I think what's important for the intelligence community is understanding, so you've got the physical science, right? You know the sea level rise is going to be X, or you know weather patterns are going to change. Things are going to be more variable. You're going to have, you know, a large amounts of rain at one time or dry periods at, at a time. So taking all of that and then marrying that information with what you know about the uh, politics in a country or what you know about the society in a country or the extremist groups in a country and how they're going to react, how they're going to intersect with these issues, and then what that means for security risks. And that I think you can do in the in the short term, but then also in, in the longer term as well, because the, the climate models we have do a pretty good job. I mean, the predictive capabilities are quite amazing. And so being able to integrate that into longer term analysis, I think the challenge can sometimes be that in in the intelligence world, you're asked to people don't care about 20 years from now, they care about, you know, tomorrow <laughs> or or the next the next six months to a year. Um, but but even that now, I think, as we've, like I said, as we've seen this summer, um, the effects are happening. So you can absolutely talk about it. That's exactly mirroring, I think, probably some of the experiences I've had where probably a couple of years ago, it was actually difficult convincing clients sometimes to 
be interested in or sufficiently interested in the risks associated with climate change and what it would mean for their national security because that 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 long-term view sometimes you know the resources aren't there for people to look at it and not just resources in terms of money i mean in terms of attention you know mm-hmm. because everything is so focused on the short-term risks and threats and you know things that people have to deal with and i think climate has just been one of those things that too many people have either been putting off or, or maybe they find it difficult that even you know so for those customers you have perhaps within the intelligence community the national security community even when you're able to outline for them fairly accurately what the potential risks are further down the line do you find that it's still difficult for them to then think about what they should do about that i think it can be i mean the the what to do about it i think is challenging particularly because climate change is a systemic risk right it's not a single threat it's not a a uh, missile or a weapon, yeah. right? It's, it's, right? it's something that shapes the landscape and that's yes. more complex. So it requires a different way of thinking about risk and it requires a, a better understanding of tools like scenario planning and scenario exercises um, that, that help you think about these risks in a different way. But I mean, maybe I can give one concrete example of where I think bringing a climate lens would be really useful. And that's what's happening in Iran right now with the protests there in the streets over power outages and and water shortages. And there are a bunch of reasons those protests are happening. It's not just climate change, right? It's poor environmental stewardship by the the government, environmental degradation, corruption, you know, governance issues. But when you layer climate change on top of that, when you layer drier, hotter temperatures that are increasing risks of drought and, and power outages, it makes the problem worse. And if you don't understand how climate change is shaping things in Iran, then you won't get the full picture when you do your analysis or make your policy recommendations. You know, when I worked in the intelligence community, regional analysts would pride themselves on knowing absolutely everything about a country's history and culture and music and, you know, just all those little kind of intangible things that that help you understand what's happening somewhere. And I would argue those analysts need to know now about the climate effects in the countries they work on in the same way and consider it the similar kind of information they need to bring to the table when they're examining these these challenges. Because if you don't, you'll you'll miss things. That's such a great example as well to give, you know, what's what's going on, you know, right now this summer in, in Iran, um, where I think the people have shown over the years and in, and people anywhere, I think, do show an immense resilience towards all those other factors you mentioned, things like corruption, poor governance, um, you know, not not having political freedom, perhaps. But when it comes to climate and and the basic things like not having water, I mean, there's 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 a limit which people will hit pretty quickly. Right. And that's um, in many ways a much bigger factor towards driving instability on political instability in a country like that, I would imagine, than um, some of those other factors that, you know, you mentioned that people people might have been tracking or analysts or, you know, people who are experts on the region might be tracking day by day. So, yeah, it's it's it, it's such an immensely important thing you've touched on there. And um, it's something that I think you're right. Too many people probably have not understood well enough in the past. And, uh, you know, what, what I also find, again, really fascinating is, and uh, this touches on the title of uh, your article uh, this month in War on the Rocks, where you, you sort of, the headline is at least, secrets alone won't save us. Um, you know, none of this information 
is secret. I mean, it's all openly available. It's out there. People can look at this. They can understand the, 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 the you know, the information if they want to. What would be your advice, I guess, to to analysts who are trying to understand this kind of um, factor or these, these kind of driving forces? You know, where should they be looking? What kind of things should they be looking at? Um, and, you know, is it the case that they can get everything they need from open source information? So I don't think they can get everything they need from open source information. I think the key, and I talk about this in the article, is marrying that open source information with the secret information, right? To understand how governments are going to react or how an extremist group might try to take advantage. I mean, all all sorts of things. But you do need that good base of understanding about physical climate risks in the regions you're covering. And you can get that different places. You can get it from um, primary source literature and scientific journals. There was just a great uh, article I read this past week on um, the nexus of migration in climate change in India, for example, that if I were, you know, an analyst <laughs> covering India, I would absolutely need to read that to understand mm-hmm. yeah. the, the risks there. But you can also, I think the other thing the intelligence community needs is access to to models and to data systems that integrate, you know, artificial intelligence capabilities to uh, run more iterations of climate models that will give you more detailed information on risks in certain countries. And there needs to be a demand signal from the IC and the national security community for for better models that are more uh, localized and provide more local details on data, which I, I also talk about in the article. There are certain parts of the world where data is fairly uh, lacking, like in sub-Saharan Africa, and um, there could be a push from the intelligence community. And so th- this, you know, it's kind of one of those gray zones where it's perhaps not fully open source and that it doesn't exist and you just need to search for it on the internet. But it's, it's not clandestine collection either, but there's something that the intelligence community could build or work with other parts of the national security community to build that would be data to input into all sorts of analysis that they're doing and and provide indicators and warnings, for example, of of risks coming down the pike. Um, And there's there's a lot of opportunity there, I think, to think a little differently about how how to tackle these issues and who needs access to them in the intelligence community. Because like you say, there's certain things you can't pick up, obviously, you know, like how people are going to react or organizations will react. But I guess understanding what is happening, at least in terms of you know, the, the the physical risks, that understanding can be built pretty accurately. But it just requires, like you said, a bit more additional work in terms of data modeling, etc. And are you finding that actually the gaps are, you know, you mentioned sub-Saharan Africa, but where there are sort of gaps or there's not enough coverage, that in some ways those are almost the regions where the risks are worse. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, obviously Africa is one of the areas that will face some of the greatest risks from climate change, and yet that data is is lacking there, uh, more localized data. Um, another area, though, that I think is of high interest is the Indo-Pacific, and uh, there is decent data in, in some places there. I think one of the one of the keys for the intelligence community that I mentioned earlier is to find ways to partner with the scientists within the government, whether it's in the United States or elsewhere, who are doing some of this work and find opportunities to share best practices, to inform what those scientists are doing, to get the right information. Um, Because I do think when I when I think about this, I think about creating a climate competent workforce right within the national security community. And so you need um, 
you need people who know where to go and where to get the information and and then work with the scientists to build uh, better models or get access to to modeling information in, in such a way that that can be applied to the national security context. Interesting. Yeah, and I think um, I think modeling, I guess, it has been getting better and better and more refined when looking at this type of issue. Um, it, it, do you see more improvements to come? You mentioned the potential use of AI to do more of that modeling as well. Yeah, there are a couple examples I cite in my most recent article. I think one example is the use of what are called large ensemble assessments, which are repeated runs of the same climate model, but you change the starting point each time. And that allows scientists to more clearly show a range of potential regional climate trends, which is important for, for analysts, right? If they're trying to incorporate this into their work. There's also high resolution climate models that uh, rely on advances in supercomputing power so they can better represent more small scale processes. And again, that's more allows for more precision. Uh, I think one, you know, tool, and this isn't a, a model per se, but it's it's a report, the IPCC, the International uh, panel on climate change uh, is going to come out with its next assessment uh, the, in the coming year. The first part of that assessment will come out next month in August, and that will provide a new analysis of the physical risks of climate change going forward. And so every analyst, I would argue, every regional analyst within uh, the intelligence community needs to read that, understand it, understand what it means for their region. Um, and, and that's another way they can incorporate this in, into their day-to-day -day work. So it's, it's a range of tools, right? I mean, you don't need everyone to use the, the fancy modeling all the time, but they need to know where to go to get the reports that, that, that um, are derived from that modeling, if that makes sense. Yeah, that does, definitely. And I'd love to ask you about the, um, the kind of, what you, well, you touched on earlier, the difference maybe between trying to do this in a in a way that is more like forecasting versus scenario analysis so uh -huh. you know um i read the global trends report that was uh -huh. that was put out this year and um that's a i mean it's it's terrifying in some ways but it's also <laughs> um, it's really interesting to read because it's a great i think example of scenario analysis and um it'd be great to get a little bit more insight from you in terms of how you approach this issue in terms of whether you're you know looking to do the um, short-term or uh, localized forecasting in any way and you know I guess as you mentioned that some of the data modeling as it becomes more and more granular and more accurate can help towards that you know versus actually focusing more on, on scenario analysis where maybe there's a bit more um, creative thinking involved. Sure in terms of the global trends project what we tried to do with this most recent report uh, that was released in March was to separate out the issues where we think there's fairly uh, certain data where over the next 20 years you can be fairly confident in the trajectory of, of the issue and climate change was one of four uh, fundamentals we identified right as as driving the future landscape and we're fairly confident about where it's going over the next 20 years and so that's the what I would consider kind of the forecast piece right that that you're fairly confident in but then where the uncertainty comes in is where you take that forecast of the physical effects of climate change right sea level rise is going to be x 
uh, change in melting ice in the Arctic is going to be why. And you intersect that with human decision-making, right? And whether it's states or the international community or society, and they're going to react to those physical changes in different ways. And that's where the scenario analysis comes in, in my my opinion. You take a, you take a snapshot of the physical risk, say, in a geographic location, and then you do some scenarios work over what, how, how are these different communities and actors going to respond? What are the key drivers of their response? Um, how might that play out in those regions? And that I think is the interesting part because I think what I love about scenarios analysis is that when it's done well, it allows the person reading the scenario or participating in the scenario process to put themselves in that future and think about how decisions they make today will then shape that future world. And that's, I think, where you want to get with policymakers on these climate security issues. There are things they can do right now that will um, that will push us in one direction or the other on, on, these, on these things. We can choose to adapt. We can choose to cut emissions. We can choose to work with allies and partners to help them adapt and cut emissions. Or we cannot. And you can see the effects of those different decisions in, in a scenarios process. And so I would argue that more and more of the work of intelligence is about that type of scenarios. I mean, there's always going to be, you're always going to need the tactical kind of short-term information about what country X is going to do in response to Y in the next six months. Um, but for the, the types of risks we face today, these actorless risks, whether it's climate change, whether it is a pandemic, um, a, a scenarios process, a systemic analysis, um, uh, understanding of risk, I think, is really, really important. That's mm, um, yeah, it's interesting how you describe that. I guess in in terms of the uh, that combination of forecasting and scenario analysis, and, and just generally trying to layer the certainty of knowing certain, you know, or having, I guess, a really high level of confidence in certain aspects, whereas other things or uh, that are unknowns, um, you're obviously trying to map out. Um, with the kinds of challenges that you know that uh, that the intelligence community and national security community are dealing with in general, are you, are you also seeing a greater take up from customers in in the U.S. government, for instance, um, where they they realize actually they need to know more about this and they want to know more about this? Is is that demand driving better analysis, or, or do you think there's still a lot more to be done to help really understand these issues? Sure. Certainly in the U.S., I think the demand is is high. I mean, from the president on down, from the beginning of his administration, he's identified climate as a top foreign policy issue and an existential risk. The executive order he released in January tasked a risk assessment from the Pentagon. It tasked a national intelligence estimate from the IC on, on climate security risks. I think the challenge is you can't just flip a switch and be able to tackle these issues overnight. And the the national security community and the intelligence community in the U.S. needs to staff up, right, to have the right people in place to be able to um, to tackle these issues. They need to change culture a bit, I think, which is a harder thing to do than just you know <laughs> hire more more people. But you know, you have folks. When I was in the intelligence community, you still had some senior folks who did not think climate change was something the intelligence community should deal with it all. Yeah, maybe we should, you know, try to find out what 
other people at the negotiating table might be bringing to the table for climate talks. But that was kind of the extent of, of the climate piece. Leave it to the scientists. That's not an intel issue. So you have to overcome that. Um, and you have to overcome the desire, and this happens in governments, I think, around the world, to silo these functional issues off, right? You have a climate change office, you have a climate change team, they're the ones that deal with it, whereas we're the ones over here that deal with China or Russia or the important threats. And that's, I think, the wrong way to think about it. Yeah, you need that climate team, but you also need analysts on the China team who understand how climate change is shaping Chinese security risks within their own country or how it's shaping Chinese behavior abroad or what's going to happen on the Mekong or the Brahmaputra um, in the coming years due to climate change and how will that shape China's relationships with other countries on those rivers. I mean, all of those kinds of questions. And, and so that's, I think, um, I think while the demand is high from policymakers now in the U.S., shifting the organizational cultures to meet that is is more challenging. I think uh, Director of National Intelligence Haynes is been saying all the right things uh, publicly about this and and pushing forward on it. So I think that's a good a good sign. Um, but you got to get that culture change in there too. So then the issue survives politics going forward, regardless of who's in in office in the White House. Once you build it into the bureaucratic and institutional cultures of of the U.S. government, it's harder to dislodge, <laughs> I would argue, then. It's, it, it stops being a political issue, right? It, it just becomes part of the day-to-day the -day business. Yeah, certainly. And, you know, you mentioned there are more people, different skills, culture change. Is that a case of the existing agencies needing to, um, needing to do that themselves? Or do you see new uh, some sort of new organization being created for that mm. i mean i know i i know there are probably pros and cons for any any different approach but what's your sort of take on this yeah i don't think you need new fully new organizations i think you might need some new institutions within existing organizations for example i think the u.s national intelligence council should have a national intelligence officer for climate and environment. NIO's national intelligence officers are the senior most people across the IC leading on these issues. And then if that person was elevated to an NIO, they would be able to lead a team. They would have kind of the prestige and the WASA and the seat at the table, the same way you have an NIO for uh, cyber and an NIO for WMD. Um, if it really is an existential threat <laughs> to the mm. United States, then you need someone at that level. But that's that's creating a new position within existing institutions. I, I think it's better to to try and change the existing institutions because places like CIA, I mean, they you're not going to create a new institution that can compete with them, for example. Yeah, and I guess, as you mentioned, you, you really need their analysts to have the yeah. information at their fingertips, I guess, to help them understand the things they're looking at, you know, the countries they're looking at, for example, um, to understand how climate change is going to affect the risks that they're already monitoring. And with that, is there, in your view, something that, that they need to do in terms of, you know, at an individual level, I guess, you know, what would be your advice for analysts or teams or units? What are the kind of skills and knowledge they would need they might need to develop that are outside of their maybe current expertise you know as i said earlier i think basic scientific literacy is really important and uh learning where to go for that information and and how to understand it i would build it into training programs you know in in a way that's useful for folks um i think being better trained and and thoughtful about systemic risk 
also an understanding kind of a systems thinking approach to um, to the issues and being able to think more broadly. I think sometimes, you know, especially on really high priority topics, uh, people, what, what they cover gets so narrowly sliced, right? You cover this tiny little bit of the Chinese military, for example, <laughs> right? And, and so it's hard to see the big picture uh, sometimes. So, so a different, different thinking there. Um, and, and then a better ability, I think, also to engage with the outside world on this and talk to experts outside of the national security community who are looking at these issues. I think there's a lot to be learned, not only from the scientific community, but from the emergency response and emergency management community in the US and elsewhere in terms of how you're responding to these risks. Um, I think there's all sorts of really important uh, folks to talk to that are outside of the traditional kind of international relations or political science circles that I think most intelligence analysts would would tend to to run in. Um, so I think that's that's really important, also, and, and other parts of the government too, right? Uh, talk to FEMA uh, in in the U.S. Find find ways to to talk to new new and different folks. That's really interesting, and so I guess it's a case sometimes of people and organizations, I guess, facilitating the right fora to have those discussions in and to bring in those ex outside expertise and and like you said yeah maybe it needs a, just that sort of widening of understanding around actually it's not just about talking to the same um maybe outside experts that people have been talking to previously um but do you, do you think that the coronavirus pandemic that we're you know we're all still living through has that changed people's perceptions of climate security risks Absolutely. I, I do think there's more recognition now of this kind of artificial divide that's existed for many years between hard and soft security issues, right? Hard security issues are the guns and the, the weapons and the soft security issues are health and, and climate and human rights and other things like that. Uh, you know, and, and if the pandemic's taught us anything that soft security issues kill a heck of a lot more people in the United States than than the hard security issues have in, in recent years. So um, so I do think there's a there's a recognition and a shift. And you see this in the draft national security or the interim national security strategy guidance from the Biden administration, where they really talk quite a bit about climate change and about the pandemic. Um, and I think there's also a recognition of the the cascading nature, compounding nature of risks like a pandemic or climate change, right? In many places around the world, it wasn't just COVID that was a problem. It was COVID plus political instability, plus ongoing conflict, plus uh, climate shocks, and all of those things together are what create the biggest security risks. You know, I was just reading this morning that the International Committee of the Red Cross um, found last year that the 20 countries in the world that are most vulnerable to climate change, 12 of those are also active conflict zones, right? Mm -hmm. So when you think about those things coming together, and I, I think the pandemic was was similar. Um, so yeah, you have seen a shift in in conversation. Um, I still think it's, it's really hard though to, I, I keep coming back to this issue of culture and the more intangible pieces of how to build resilience and how to change the way you approach issues like this. Um, and that's, I, I've i impressed with what I've seen, especially in the Defense Department and the leadership there thus far, as well as um, out of DNI Haynes, but it's it's a it's a big challenge. Mm, yeah, no, and, and especially when you start to look at how it 
drives other risks. And you mentioned there the overlap with conflict and and areas of conflict. And I guess you know we saw in in Syria there was uh, you know debate about to the extent to which climate change was a driver of the conflict. But I think it, it, it's undeniable that it plays a role in conflict and and driving conflict. And that's only likely to get worse. So, you know, in, in, I mean, it's it's a difficult issue to to sort of analyze and deal with without without getting depressed, quite frankly, sometimes, <laughs> you know, because it is it is so stark. And, you know, when you look at the the things you mentioned before, where you've got the certainties and the uncertainties, the certainties are just, you know, really quite dramatic. And, um, you know, we're talking about you know, millions of people being displaced, etc., lots of other potential knock-on effects secondary say you know second order effects etc all of all of that as well um and you, th- you sort of see how the world has struggled to deal with the pandemic and you think okay how, how are we going to deal with climate um you know is that how you know is that something that you you were factoring into the um not just the, i guess the analysis but also the way you communicate the analysis to your customers yeah, no, those are those are good questions, and I think sometimes it's easy to feel kind of helpless on the on the topic because it is so so big in some ways, and it and it can seem so so challenging. I, there's a couple I think of bright spots though, and I, I think these are important to highlight when you're when you're talking opportunity analysis to policymakers or thinking about how to tackle it. One, as we've already talked about, the predictive capabilities with climate change are quite good, so that's a great tool in our toolbox that we could use to help us better prepare for these effects, right? You don't have yeah. predictive capabilities on what X leader is going to do at five, 10 years from now, but you do on climate change. So let's let's take advantage of that. The other thing is I think when it comes to conflict, and there's a lot of academic work that's been done on this, is, is that there are opportunities for leveraging climate issues or environmental issues for peace building as right. well. So it can be an opportunity often you know collaboration between parties that that distrust one another over more technical aspects of of climate issues can be can open the door to broader talks on other issues interventions uh, to prevent conflict that bring an environmental or climate lens to them can often be more sustainable over the long term because they promote good governance i mean there so there's ways to to look at it as well that that bringing this lens doesn't only highlight different risks but it also highlights different opportunities uh, to manage manage conflict in the future so i think that's that's another really important thing to highlight for governments. The last thing I'll say too is, you know, obviously the Biden administration here in the US, one of their main uh, issues with Special Envoy John Kerry and others is to convince other countries to raise their ambition towards cutting emissions. I think on the the climate security front, highlighting opportunities to partner with allies around the world on some climate security issues can have a co-benefit then of, of making them realize the importance of, of cutting emissions as well. So you can advance other policy goals by focusing on um, on climate security. Is it still difficult to get decision makers to prioritize this in and amongst everything else they're doing? Or is it a case of once you start to demonstrate all of the things that it's connected to, that it's, it's starting to become not just um, a temporary top priority but do you think it's now this is this is it i mean climate is going to be a top national security priority for the as, as long as we're, we're able to sort of forecast i guess <laughs> yeah i 
I, when I'm feeling optimistic, I say yes, that, that they've, the, 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 there's been enough of a change that people now take it seriously and, and recognize the, the risks and the problems. And you see that, I mean, again, like I said, with the bipartisan support in Congress and, and you see that coming up in so many different conversations, uh, Secretary of Defense Austin was just speaking in Singapore today at a IISS event and he talked about climate change there. So it's part of the list of things you talk about when you talk about national security. Uh, I do think one of the challenges we still face is this tendency of policymakers, and, and understandably so, to want to rack and stack the issues, right? Is climate change more of a risk than China? If China's the top issue, then why why should we focus on climate change? And so, you know, you got to have priorities and, and climate change isn't, can't be up there with, with China. Um, but I think that's the, you know, as we've already discussed, that's kind of the wrong way of looking at the question. Instead, you need to look at how climate change shapes competition with China, how it shapes Chinese behavior, Russian behavior. I mean, it's 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 not separate from those things. Um, and so, yeah, you're still going to have to make hard decisions sometimes about what one issue you're going to talk about, for example, in a meeting or, or whatnot. But but it's not because of the nature of the climate security threat, it, it's not, you know, it's not useful to kind of use that 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 rack and stack approach. And, and I think you're seeing more and more an understanding of that. There was a hearing in the U.S. Congress just last week on the Indo-Pacific and, and climate change and climate risks, and with a bunch of folks from the administration testifying, and then both Senator Mitt Romney and um, uh, Ed Markey from Massachusetts leading the, the hearing and asking questions. And they both uh, seem to understand the the integrated nature of of the risk. So I think progress is definitely definitely being made, but it needs constant constant focus. And with the sort of scenarios, I guess that you mapped out in the with the global trends report, et cetera, or that you know you're doing in your or that you're working with in your your day to day work, where do you see the sort of most acute sort of points of um, risk? globally, I guess, you know, that I mean, you mentioned the overlap with the areas of conflict, but are there are there some regions of the world where you think actually this is really, really going to have a huge impact, not just long term, but maybe even in the nearer term? Sure. So a couple areas I'm particularly worried about, and we've done some work recently at the Center for Climate and Security on this, a few different reports, but one is is South Asia, where I think you have a confluence of, of different issues that, that will increase challenges. One is just internally within states in India and Bangladesh, Pakistan, where extreme weather events will cause um, more migration from rural areas to cities, uh, potentially overwhelming uh, government's ability to, to manage those, those population movements can cause tensions within those countries but also geopolitical tensions in the region. You know, I mentioned the, the Brahmaputra earlier, the shared river between uh, China and India. There's also the Indus, which goes from China through India and into Pakistan. Um, and, and you have climate change, you know, affecting the water levels and the flooding in those rivers, but you have really tense relationships between those countries too, and a lack of trust. And so I think there's a real risk that say, you know, there's downstream flooding on the Brahmaputra. India blames something China has done with its dams higher up on the river when in actuality it was climate. And those two, the, 
the the tensions rise even further between the two countries and you have a very combustible mix there. Um, and so that's that's something I, I worry about uh, quite a bit and it's an area of the, of the world that the United States cares about uh, quite a bit as well. Um, Central America is another one of high interest to the United States where last year you had not one but two uh, extremely intense hurricanes batter uh, uh, countries there in quick succession. Uh, again, pushing people from rural areas to urban areas where you have then corruption and crime and insecurity uh, challenges economically, which then pushes people to leave the country and, and move uh, north towards the United States, uh, creating you know potential political challenges here in the US uh, that, are, that are risky as well. So, I mean, and the Arctic is another one then. I'll end with the Arctic where um, you know you have melting ice uh, allowing for more activity up there, commercial activity. Um, you've got actors like Russia and China who are perhaps interested in gray zone operations, right? Leveraging some of that commercial activity to hide bad behavior, increased risks of accidents. And you've got old tools and old systems like the Arctic Council, which has done a great job of managing scientific cooperation and, and other things, but perhaps isn't up to the challenge of a more tense environment there. Um, so that's just a few places <laughs> I, I worry about quite a bit. Um, I, also here, frankly, within the United States, which is obviously outside of the, the remit of, of the US, national, or US intelligence community in terms of the work it does, but in terms of security risks, you just watch what's happening in, in California and the West right now with the drought and the fires, the strain it's putting on governments the challenges communities are having as they and the government is having as they have to make decisions about turning water off or on at dams and on rivers and then uh, folks getting upset about that i mean i think it's 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 a concern at home as well yeah no kidding um i mean some some of the weather events we've seen in the last just the last 6 months let alone 18 months or, or longer you know uh, the the extreme nature of those globally I think has shocked a lot of people. Um, probably not the climate scientists, um, but yeah, I think it's shocked, shocked a lot of people who aren't climate scientists. Um, and you know the um, the areas of risk you mentioned, you know, those all overlap so much with geopolitical concerns as you've described that they've got to be part of what the national security community is looking at. And you know, w within that, um, uh, do you feel like actually there's more that needs to be done? to employ some of the techniques that you know you're obviously very familiar with and that you've used to produce things like the global trends report such as scenario analysis is that something that you know do you think the, the intelligence community could be doing more of um and i know sometimes that the, there's the a lack of uh time and resources for that but is that something that's key to really planning for how to deal with this situation I think it absolutely is, and I think doing more of that is is really important. Um, I I think the key is bringing in that that climate lens to the work. I think there's a lot of scenarios analysis that is done generally in the at least in the U.S. intelligence community, but making sure it's it's rooted in in climate um, developments as well is important. And that's why I was really pleased to see in the Biden administration executive order when they tasked the Pentagon to do a climate risk assessment. It also said then you have to leverage this climate risk assessment in your uh, war gaming. So mm -hmm. I think that's a, a perfect example of a place where bringing in that climate perspective um, 
is critical. And so not just that you're doing climate war games, right? Like what happens if you have a food security or water security crisis somewhere, but instead what, you know, your average war game about X, Y, Z, but you bring in climate shocks into that, that war game. What does that do to the conflict? What does that do to U.S. ability to operate, for example? Um, those are really important questions we need to, to be asking all the time. That's such a, a good point maybe for us to take away and, and sort of to end on in a way that climate is now a dimension of everything that's security related. And so it's got to be incorporated in everything like wargaming and any kind of futures analysis. So it's, yeah, it's been really interesting talking to you, Aaron, and getting your thoughts and really trying to understand that journey that that you've been on actually as an intelligence analyst and, and trying to learn much more about climate and, and how to go about doing that. And I hope it'll encourage others to start thinking about this in a more detailed way of how they incorporate it within their intelligence work, within their sort of national security you know, policy and decision making. I'm sure it is now everywhere anyway. But, you know, I think for in individual organizations within the uh, intelligence communities that we work with at Jane's and um, that you work within in the U.S., that, that this is something that needs it needs the kind of things you talked about. You know, it needs that extra element of understanding and uh, culture change uh, to really make people understand what to do with uh, climate security risks. And uh, as you said in your in your article, I think that it will give to people decision advantage if they really do get on top of it. Absolutely. No, thank you so much for having me. I always enjoy these these conversations. Thank you so much. No, thank you, Erin. Thanks. Thanks for joining us this week on The World of Intelligence. Make sure to visit our website, janes.com slash podcast, where you can subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Google Podcasts, so you'll never miss an episode. Uncover the threat landscape with assured and interconnected threat intelligence from Janes. Covering military capabilities, terrorism and insurgency, country risk, and CBRN. Support your threat and capability assessments and enhance your situational awareness with Jane's Threat Intelligence Solutions. Find out more at janes.com slash threat.